0: This is the Bay Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we let Paul teach us from the metaphor of covenants and death. If part of us died at baptism, why would we live as if we were bound?
1: Yeah, Paul's still having the same conversation, even though we've gotten in well, we haven't gotten to a new chapter yet, but Paul's still having the same conversation. He wants to use a he wants to use a metaphor. He wants to use a real-life allegory. He wants to Take something that we understand from our real life experience and use it to explain some theological reality. He's going to tell us that here in a moment. And we stopped because he's about ready to shift gears. We stopped just short of finishing chapter, what was it, six, Brent? So let's go and finish up chapter six here.
0: I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Pretty, pretty serious little slam there. (laughs) Because you simple minded people. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Okay, I'm going to you right there, Brent. What benefit did you reap at the time of the things you are now ashamed of? Hold on to that. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to, of God slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And there's that famous
1: verse right there. We quote it all the time, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And, and we'll come back to that here in just a moment. It's an idea we kind of pull out of context because something's going on here that started. If you remember, Brent, I told people, pay attention to that phrase of wage because it showed up Earlier, But more on that in just a second. Paul realizes the limitations of his metaphor, like is is slavery really the best way to understand our relationship with God? And yet, he also understands the metaphor's ability to speak in the context of first century Rome. We could certainly expand on this idea, but it would be beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here for today's conversation. Suffice it to say, most scholars estimate that one out of every three people in the Roman Empire was under some form of slavery. So this is a very relevant metaphor that Paul is using here. Paul says that when we live under fear and insecurity and the constant awareness of not measuring up, it's like being a slave to a horrible taskmaster. He asks, what benefit did you reap at that time? Those things result in death, Paul says. Paul continues to use this idea of working and wages, an idea that started in what chapter, Brent? Can you remember? Where'd we say that showed up? Uh, three, almost. Chapter four oh, of four. Abraham. He asked the he asked the conversation earlier. He said, "What did Abraham? What wage did Abraham get?" Right. Because if it was like if it was just his credit, if it was because of the things that Abraham had done, well, then he would have gotten a wage. But it has nothing to do with wages. It was about trust. Paul said. So he started this conversation about wages two, three chapters ago. And we have to remember that Paul's not just having a a conversation in a box here. He's having a conversation that's been taking place in his mind over the last few chapters. He started this conversation about wages in chapter 4. It will culminate in Paul's discussion here. It is in this very context that our famous proof text appears, for the wages of sin is death. It becomes clear now how often we rip that verse completely out of context and use it for purposes never intended by Paul. Paul's case is that when we live according to the lie of sin, the only thing we get in return is death. That's what he asked his Jewish audience. What wage did you get? What did you get in return? The actual phrase, what benefit did you reap at that time? And then he says, those things result in death. Those things result in death. The paycheck earned at the end of a hard work day in the world of sin or the world of righteousness, if you're trying to earn your justification that way is paid from the order of death. But Paul has just finished saying that we died to that old way of thinking. We don't work for that old slave driver anymore. We have been raised to walk in a fresh, new light with a new understanding. God desires to give us a gift, not a paycheck. This free gift is eternal life and all the things you said last episode about eternal life. Being present and now. This gift is accessible to all today. To make sure we understand that this slave nature, this old slave driver called sin, has been put to death, Paul uses an additional example from their context. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent, into chapter 7.
0: Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law. Oh, By the way, what's the audience? Oh, the Jews. The very Jews. Yep, yep. Now I'm speaking to people who know the law. Those who yep. know the law. Possibly proselytes, I guess, but yeah, definitely. Possibly. It's
1: It's good. It's a possibility.
0: Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Right, so
1: Paul's still using this earthly, real-life metaphor. Paul says when a woman is married, she's bound to her husband legally. But when that husband dies, she is no longer legally bound. In the very similar fashion to this taskmaster analogy, Paul says that old husband we were married to is now dead. We are not bound to him anymore. We are free to marry a new husband. Of course, how silly it would be to try to be married to two husbands, one who is alive and another who is dead. It is this old way of thinking, a way of thinking that says we have work; we have to work for our justification, which led to our sinful behavior. It's an understanding built on fear. Whether we are a bunch of pagans who are afraid we might not experience all life has to offer, so we build ourselves up to be gods. Whether we are good people, group number two from the beginning of Romans, who recognize a certain standard for morality, or whether we are deeply religious people who have been entrusted with the Torah, if we think we are in need of meeting some standard of righteousness, it is this very standard that bears witness against us, reminding us that we are not enough. It is this fear that drives us to a pervasive sinfulness, or at least an awareness of it. But we have to let that way of thinking die. Again, it will be important for us to realize that when Paul says these Jews, clearly Paul's audience, again, made obvious by the reference in the first part of the passage you read there, Brent, when these Jews died to the law, he is not saying they stopped observing the law. What he is saying is that they stopped trying to find their justification in observing the law, which was Paul's argument back in chapter three and the entire argument we found in Galatians. It's the only interpretation consistent with Paul's current argument. New Testament application, and Pauline theology as seen in all the other letters. But of course, as Paul usually does, he's anticipated our next question and is headed there in the very next passage. And so now we come to one of these famous passages we often use to explain some of those assumptions we've been questioning throughout this series on Romans. Many will go uh, to this passage, the struggle with sin that Paul describes in Romans 7, and use it to argue against some of uh, my suggestions, maybe, about the essence of mankind and our sinful nature. But before we jump to too many conclusions, let's take this passage chunk by chunk and see what we
0: hear from Paul. Go ahead, Brent, give me the first just one or two verses there. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. All right, so we pick up this passage with Paul talking about one of the nagging
1: questions that we've been dealing with in the New Testament. Isn't Paul arguing that the law of Moses has died and that we have thrown it into the refuse pile and exchanged it for a better truth? I have been arguing adamantly for a more historically appropriate understanding of the works of the law. What was the phrase, Brent? Can you remember? Mixatma hatarah. You got it. And here is one place where we see Paul communicating the same concept that he talked about in the book of Galatians and even earlier in the book of Romans here. The law is not problematic. The law is not done away with. On the contrary, without the law, we would never have been able to learn and appreciate an understanding of righteousness and sin, the way of life and the way of death. It is the law which gave God's people a place to begin the conversation of what it means to partner with God. So does that mean, Brent, going back, let's review Galatians. Does that mean that Gentiles ought to follow the law? No. No. In fact, Paul argued they probably shouldn't, but we would not have been able to have any of this New Testament understanding, any of this Jesus perspective, this Pauline worldview. We wouldn't be able to have any of it had we not had the law at some point to teach us about
0: who God was, what God's mission was. All those things that we learned along the way. The pedagogue, if you will. Go and keep reading. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So this knowledge that's possessed by the student of Torah, there is still
1: this beast nature in him. And we learned about this beast nature in Genesis 2 and 3 with the story of Adam and Eve. This part of Paul and all of us goes to work and begins to tempt the follower of God towards the trespass. Paul reiterates that it's not the fault of the law, for the commandment itself is holy and good. It's the part of us that needs to be mastered. Remember, Cain, you must master it. It's the part of us that needs to be mastered, which begins to rear up and kick in rebellion. But someone might say that even though the law was good, it still brought about sin we struggle with, so God never should have given it in the first place. But Paul has anticipated our thoughts
0: once again. Go ahead, Brent. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So Paul very clearly says it's not the law and the knowledge of the law that is the problem.
1: It is the intruder. It's an intruder that does not belong inside of us. It is the sin in us. Something Paul will reiterate in here in just a moment. Please notice the way that Paul talks about sin. It is in us and doing a work in us, but it is an intruder. It is not the truest true of who we are. Paul says that the law is of the spirit. It is good and holy, but we are of the flesh. This is not some form of Gnostic dualism, something that we'll talk about later in session four, particularly with the book of Colossians. But it is a reference to two different natures that are in a struggle within us. While the law is of God, we are sold under sin and find ourselves subject to the flesh. Some translations will render that carnal. The word being used in many of these conversations in the New Testament, most all of them, comes
0: from a Greek root word, sarx. S-A-R-X. And Paul just used that just a few verses ago. I think that was in verse 5. talks about the realm of the flesh, the realm of sarx.
1: Right. In fact, Brent, if you wouldn't mind, would you hyperlink a, uh, the, the, the Blue Letter Bible page for Sarks. Find Sarks. pull up the word Sarks and just hyperlink that in the show notes so that our people can actually look at it themselves. And they can look at it in any lexicon they want. That's just our favorite online tool that we like to use. Sarks is a word that refers to our beast-like nature, or I like what it says in the lexicon on Blue Letter Bible, animal appetites. Many translations will often render the word sinful nature, which is not at all what the word is trying to communicate, at least not as we understand the idea through our Augustinian Christian worldview. Our sinful nature is not the result of original sin or the state of our depravity. That's not what, what Paul's done here in Romans. Simply translated, the sarx is the animal appetites that we were told about all the way back in the beginning of the story. In Genesis, we talked about what it meant to be made in the image of God and how the rabbis spoke of the fact that we are more than animals, we are more than beasts. What makes us different from the beasts is our ability to know when to say enough. Adam was warned, Eve was warned, and Cain was directly told that his task would be to master this part of himself, what we would later call in Greek, the sarks. I just love how when you look it up, it literally says in the definition, animal appetites. And we, for years, just rendered it sinful nature. Now, the newer translations, ESV, I believe, gets rid of that. I think it says flesh. Uh, The new NIV, I believe, has gotten rid of sinful nature. But the old NIV often translated it sinful nature. Drove me crazy. A totally arbitrary translation in
0: my mind. I think coming up it uh, does use sinful nature. Okay. Although I don't know if it in, says in new Yeah, new NIV. Although a lot of times it says flesh. Okay, sure. NASV, yeah. I think, says flesh too.
1: Okay, so listen to Paul describe this very battle. Give us the
0: next little bit of Romans here, Brent. I'm going to pick up in verse 14 here. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, which is flesh. In my flesh. In my Actually, flesh. is that the new NIV? That's new NIV. Yeah, I think the old, no, the ESV says flesh. Okay. Yep. The footnote says, or my flesh. Okay. And I'm assuming that's Sarks. All right. Yeah, it's Sarks. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Isn't that uh, a fantastic paragraph to read? Nice and easy. (laughs) I'm thinking... I'd like to hear somebody memorize it. (laughs) As we listen to Paul, notice that his words
1: do not describe what we teach in theology of depravity or original sin. Paul says he does not do what he, what Brent wants wants to do, but he does the very thing that he hates. If Paul is depraved and full of original sin, he should not want to do those things. But in fact, he does. Why? Because that's his true self. He will go on to say, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin is the intruder, the part of us that is not true to who we are. We are children of God, made in his image. We are so much more than mere beasts, and we are more than just tainted pieces of filth, totally given to our selfishness and sinfulness. The sin is in us, but it is not us. So it drives me crazy about so much Christian conversation. You are just sin, you are sin, you are filth. That's not what Paul describes here. And yet the battle is so very real. This is what it means to be human, to be running after God and letting him teach us what it means to be fully human, full image bearers, able to join God in his redemptive work by choosing when to say enough. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent.
0: So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me.
1: is that in my animal appetites. I love to read animal appetites when I come across circs. makes it so much more right and real in my mind. So again, we find that Paul is not teaching some form of dualism as if he longs to be rescued from his physical body. Again, he speaks of his sarx. He longs to be rescued from the struggle within his whole self. He serves God with his mind and he serves God with his will, but his beast nature is at work within him serving the law of sin. But Paul rejoices that the life and death of Jesus has shown him a better way. For it is not through a standard of morality or a system of rules that we will ever experience freedom from the struggle Paul describes, a struggle you and I know all too well. No, it is only through trusting in the promises of God, following in the example of Christ, and displaying the faith of Jesus, pistis Christu that we will find a unique kind of victory and freedom, a life where this ongoing struggle does not lead to condemnation. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be great if this struggle with our Sarks didn't always end with our own guilt and shame and the weight of the cry of rescue from our own wretched selves? Well, that's exactly where Paul heads next. Not only would it be nice, but according to Paul, it's actually the way it really is. Paul tells us that this struggle does not lead to condemnation because if the promises of God, which we looked at earlier, are true,
0: then there isn't anything to hang over our heads. I just want to point out real quick yeah. where he says, what a wretched man I am. He's not saying that the nature of himself is wretched. I just looked up this word. It is taliporos, and it means enduring troubles or afflicted, like, Love like, it. The, like there's conflict, yes. like how con? How conflicted am I? Right. As a man. Right. But not. I am a terrible person. Excellent. At my core.
1: Excellent. Love the uh, impromptu Greek word study.
0: I'm having all about. Yeah. Good well, work. You know. You know how we love Greek on this podcast. Ah, I hate <laughs> Greek so much. <laughs> uh, okay. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is actually the very promise
1: we trust when we trust the story. By witnessing the life of Jesus, we see the unadulterated love of God made flesh. His life showed us many things about the Sarks. It showed us how to live with victory over the Sarks. It showed us what really matters in God's economy and what doesn't. And his life even showed us an awful lot about God. It showed us that God is not angry, full of wrath and judgment. Instead, this God is full of love and recklessly pursues the outsider, the unloved and the screwed up. If we believe this to be true, if we have faith, if we trust in these promises, then we are set free from any cloud of condemnation, self-imposed or otherwise. This freedom allows us to
0: see things and call things what they are and walk in truth. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. All right. And just every time you hear that word flesh,
1: animal appetites, animal appetites, animal appetites. It's what we set our minds on that seems to make all the difference in the world. If we set our minds on the things of our sarks, our animal appetites and our beast-like nature, then we will reap a paycheck of death. However, if we set our minds on the things that are most true about us, it sets us free to lay down our lives for others. Our lives become a practice of self-sacrifice instead of self-preservation. It is a self-sacrifice that pleases God, not because of his system of rules, but because it's who he is. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent.
0: You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you.
1: It is this very truth of Christ that gives life to our mortal bodies, which seem to be driven by the sarks. It is the power of the resurrected Christ that takes something which seems so dead and breathes so much life into it. Give me the next couple of verses, Brent.
0: Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Paul says that because of this truth, we are debtors. That's actually
1: how the old NIV rendered that. We are debtors. By this term, he speaks primarily of being bound up in a relationship. Obligated is how the new NIV, I think you said, translated that. In our culture, we see debt through the lens of bondage and slavery. While this was true in some ways in the world of Rome, debt created much more of a covenantal and relational connection. Paul is saying that we're all bound up in a relationship as a debtor. And yet he also wants to be clear, it's not a relationship of harsh slavery. Keep reading.
0: For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul says that God would not have given this spirit
1: for the purpose of slavery, but for the purpose of sonship. It is this relationship with the Father, this debtor-patriarch relationship that paves the way for our adoption. I think of how we spoke in Galatians about being adopted into the family of God as children of Abraham, benai Avraham. Paul says it is the spirit of God, this way of love and forgiveness, this free gift of grace that allows us to be adopted into the family as daughters and sons. While in Galatians, we were speaking of Gentiles here in Romans, I think he, sp- I think he speaks of Jew and Gentile alike. But Paul also speaks of suffering being a necessity in our walk with the Lord. And it is this struggle that we find uh, so exhausting, the struggle with sin, the struggle with suffering. there, there There is much that challenges us as we walk according to the Spirit. And to shut out all the other voices screaming for our attention that causes us to scream in our insides. Paul moves on to tell us we are not alone in these struggles. For we are part of an entire creation groaning for redemption, the restoration of Genesis
0: 1 goodness. Go ahead and read the next little bit, Brent. And just to point out real quick, the footnotes on adoption to sonship um, says that uh, that specific term that Paul uses would have spoken directly to the Roman context that they were in.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, a total phrase of what it meant in the Roman Empire to be adopted. Absolutely. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation waits in eager anticipation for the children of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And so now I'm forced to consider the sufferings that
1: Paul mentions here in the 8th chapter. Is it a simple reference to the internal and personal struggle with sin that he's been talking about already? Likely, and at least that. But is he also referencing the struggle of first century Christianity in Rome? As I study this letter, I am reminded of the struggle to survive the persecution, the ridicule, and even at times, the executions. To put it simply, things are not as they should be, and they knew it. Things are not as they should be now, and we know it. There is a struggle to endure, a battle that wars inside of each of us, and there are wars that battle around us, some of them literal and some of them metaphorical, but things are not as they should be. Paul says this is true for all creation. The entirety of creation finds itself in bondage to a curse that works against everything it is supposed to be. Paul encourages his readers to fight the good fight and to engage the daily struggle because of hope. We have a deep fundamental belief in the redemptive work of God and the restoration of all things. Though we cannot see it and experience it in its fullness now, we get tastes of it. It is this hope that helps us endure and hold out for what we do not yet see. It is worth noting that the that the world that Paul speaks of, the world groaning for redemption, is which world, Brent? A future one?
0: Uh, the current one.
1: It's this one. It's very much this world. It is not that we sit around waiting to be beamed out of here to some other place where everything is made right. No, Paul tells us that this struggle is worth it because it is this world that groans for redemption. It is this world that will be set free from bondage. And it is this world that we hope will be made right. Not only this, but our hopes for this world can only be skewed by our limited, finite perspective. Paul conveys that when we think about the struggle and our longings, as we cry out for redemption and rescue, we don't even
0: know what we ask. Go ahead and keep reading. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It is the
1: same spirit who helps turn our longing and our groaning into something that rises before God. A God who hears the groaning of his creation. It seems like all of this talk about the struggle. And don't worry, we'll get to the whole predestination thing. That'll be next episode. So everybody hold on to your, hold your horses. All right. All right. It seems like all this talk about the struggle and new righteousness that comes by faith in the hope of a God who is making everything right, launches Paul into a benediction of sorts. It ends up becoming one of my favorite passages in the New Testament.
0: Go ahead, Brent. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us.
1: All right. Listen to me, listeners. Even though this struggle is hard and the temptation to give up is incredibly real, we have a God who hears the struggle and responds to the cry of his creation. Even though there are voices inside of us that scream for condemnation, the truth of the matter is there was and there is no condemnation, for it is God who justifies. And this God justifies because of faith, not because of our ability to prove ourselves. This justifying God is for us. And if this God is for us, then who could possibly be against us? At least who could be against us that could matter when they stand against the acceptance of God? If God is the justifier, who is the condemner? No one at least no one whose condemnation matters. And then I am reminded, in fact, maybe it is a physical and a literal suffering that this audience was enduring. It only makes points next, Paul's next point stronger. Go ahead and read this.
0: Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Can even
1: literal persecution and physical suffering separate us from the love of God?
0: Paul laughs at the idea. Go ahead, Brent. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If this is even remotely true for the first century believers
1: of Rome, how much more? See what I did there? Mm -hmm. Should it be true for us today? If the condemnation of Caesar himself and the point of a Roman sword can't separate us from the love of God, then what about our circumstances? If the voices that rage around the believers in Rome couldn't condemn them, how much more helpless are the voices that rage inside of our own selves? Simply put, if God is for us, who could be against us? What is it in our lives that could possibly separate us from God's love? Could our failures, our past mistakes, our horrible decisions, could our insecurities, could the expectations of our parents, could the expectations of the world, could the expectations of ourselves, could our daily struggles, could our addictions, could our desires? No, nothing could separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Paul said this truth makes us more than conquerors. How true that is. Sigmund Freud once said, how bold one gets when one is sure of being loved. You, brother or sister, are loved, and nothing
0: could ever change that about you. Nothing. All right. That's it for this episode. We have three more episodes of Romans to go. Three more. Three more. That's it. That's a lot of work left to do. Though. That's a lot of work left to do in those three episodes. So hold your Romans questions once again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe maybe hop on the uh, Baymoth Slack. There you if go. If you're not connected there. Yeah. Get in some conversation with some other listeners around the uh, around the world. You should put the all invitation link in the show notes. Yeah, we'll do. All right. All right. Thanks for joining us on the BMW podcast this week. We'll talk to you again soon. so I have a little shout-out column in my spreadsheet. All right. <laughs> Does yeah? Sigmund Freud get a shout out?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah.
0: Oh man, I didn't see that coming. Kind of...
1: Freud it up.